You are listening to Just Here for the Popcorn. Today, we are reflecting on Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tom. And Tom just told me that we need to get a Baby Yoda toy. Oh yeah, because that's very related to our discussion, but I keep seeing it on TikTok and I'm convinced like we, we need that. We, we need that in our lives. We need, to, we need to see Baby Yoda waddling around every day. wonder how our dog would react to Baby Yoda. They'd be besties. What if she's like cuddling kind of hard plastic? I don't know if it's as fun to cuddle. She but would I, I could, it. Yeah, she wouldn't mind. So Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is my favorite. I think I've read this book. I don't even, I've lost count of how many times. Like you've seen the copy that I had when I was a kid. It's lost the dust jacket. It has got pen marked up on it by accident. Like this was my favorite. And... The movie, I think it does a, a pretty great job. So we last week we recorded Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And what I love about that one is that it really sets you up for this next one. So we got so excited. Instead of waiting a week, we we're recording this early because I just needed to see the Order of the Phoenix following up Goblet of Fire. So that's why we're watching it this early. It's, you, you like it that much. I do. It is. Yeah. It's it's definitely one of my favorites. And it's not like we ever just pick one, like, let's just watch Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Like, I feel like if we sit down to watch Harry Potter, we always have to start with, like, let's go to one and then, you know, work our way through the series. So it was a nice treat to get to this one. For me, the first four I've seen many, many times with the first two the most. But five on, I've only seen a few times, like once or twice in theaters, then a couple times since it's hit the home media like the most i've seen it like order of phoenix is maybe four times versus uh the first four which is probably 10 times each you know or even more than that so like i know the first four really well like i, I can close my eyes and envision the entire the entirety of those films but here on like i, I know the big you know plot finishers and you know like certain characters in it but i don't know I don't remember all the conversations, you know, all the nuances. So these last four, it's going to be very interesting for me to review them. Every year we go to Philly to visit our friends and we have this like Harry Potter weekend. Uh, we play one of our favorite Harry Potter board games, it's um, Hogwarts Battle, and we just do all the Harry Potter things and we keep the movies on in the background. So I feel like maybe that's the last time I've seen this or at least pieces of it because we're definitely paying more attention to the game than anything. By the way, what a great game Hogwarts Battle is. So the way the game works is like every year it's like you have to deal with the villains of that story like Quirrell for year one and then Umbridge for year five. But the the difficulty is you have to deal with it the the villains like it's compounding like you deal with the villains from the first one and they come back for the second and the third so you have more and more villains each time and they all have their different abilities that seek to bring the characters down what a fascinating multifaceted game so when we were packing up books to go on the honeymoon because when you go somewhere where you sit by a pool or a beach you bring all the books with you what book did you bring hun uh to our honeymoon yeah, it's it's odd because I've read the first three books at some point in my life, and the fourth I haven't really read, but I made the choice to skip the fourth book at the time because 
I had seen the four the first four films so many times and I know there's a difference between the book and film, but I felt like five like it's territory that I'm not really you know, I don't know too much about. And it's your favorite books. Like, I might as well go for that one. I wasn't able to finish it in the time of our honeymoon, but I had a good time reading it. Every like time he came up on something that he was unfamiliar with, he's like, oh my God, I didn't realize that Sirius Black, you know, was, you know, Sirius Black's house or something. What was it? Oh, 12 Grimmauld Place. Oh, I, I can't remember. I brought, I asked a lot of questions. I feel like every other page I was like, oh, this just in, in completely like fascinated by all these things that he was learning so it was a nice it was nice to see his like reactions to that and also like come on dude i'm reading too so and also our halloween movie watch is going to begin in october and to kick it off we thought we would ask you what you want to hear for our halloween movies so tom created a list of five movies and we're going to put a link in the show notes for you to fill out and weigh in on what Halloween movie we'll start with. Anyways, before we get into reflecting on the movie, would you like to hit us with those popcorn facts? I would love to. Okay, so this film is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, just like the book, year five in the Harry Potter experience. Uh, Released July 11th. 2007 with a budget of between 150 and 200 million which was at that point the most expensive harry potter film uh the box office amount was second in terms of the harry potter hierarchy at 942 million not quite surpassing that first film yet that's of the first five the most successful of the five films um it was it made 50 million more than the third film and almost 30 million under the first film for the year 2007, it was number two at the box office. Second to Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, which I heard was a very expensive film. So that film wasn't number one. Disney was in trouble. Uh, that was only like $20 million above Order of the Phoenix. Uh, I think it was the third Pirates film. I think that's when Pirates got like way too big, and I wasn't interested in him anymore. Uh, number three... Uh, was Spider-Man 3. By the way, Pirates and Spider-Man 3 came out in May, a couple months before Harry Potter. Spider-Man 3 had a box office of $895 million, so it's like $50 million behind Harry Potter. And then there's two other bigger films that didn't do as well as Harry Potter, but they came out in July, so I'll bring them up here. Transformers at $700 million, and The Simpsons Movie, a movie I love, uh, had $500-some million. Um, Harry Potter released during the summer box office season, but I felt this one did a lot better than Prisoner of Azkaban, which is a shame because I feel like Prisoner of Azkaban is a really good film. The director was David Yates, uh, who's gone on to direct every other Harry Potter film and the Fantastic Beasts films. At the time, he was only known for the British miniseries and documentaries he did, you know, not anything, not any large work on his behalf, but still he was brought on because he could give that edginess. He could flesh out a political type of story because we were dealing with the Ministry of Magic this time. So he, he's had documentaries that deal with British politics, so this could be up his alley. Before they had him as a director, they almost brought back Mike Newell, but he declined to come back. Guillermo del Toro um, and Matthew Vaughn, who would go on to direct a couple of the X-Men films, and I think Kick-Ass and what's that other? Oh, The Kingsman. 
So he's done a bunch of those kind of films. So it could have been an interesting fit for Matthew Vaughn or Del Toro. And he would have been maybe a little bit like Cron, like bringing the, the weirdness. But David Yates did a really good job here, bringing Harry Potter into the, the next level of very mature adult storytelling. We see a couple images like flashbacks through the earlier part of the series, and it feels like we're in a totally different, like you almost forget about the beginning of Harry Potter. Now we're, the story's gotten so mature now. It's written by Michael Goldenberg, uh, so it's not Steve Close, because I think he was too busy. Goldenberg uh, wrote for the 2003 Peter Pan film, Green Lantern, and Artemis Fowl. So I don't know, I don't think necessary it was his fault, but those <laughs> most of those projects didn't do too well. Scores by Nicholas Hooper, who would go on to do the score for Half Blood Prince, and a few of those Disney nature films. Uh, production company was Warner Brothers. Uh, we watched it on our Ultimate Edition Blu-ray. But if you're looking to watch it, uh, I don't know of any streaming services that hold it right now, but you can always hit up that library. A lot of good treasures there for the book and the movie. The runtime was 2 hours and 18 minutes. At this point, it's the shortest Harry Potter film. I don't think it's the shortest overall out of the eight films, but it's interesting because it's adapted from the longest Harry Potter book, right? Yeah, I think, you know, like I, I would have loved to see this movie be a little bit longer, but I can understand like cutting out what you did in the fourth one that wouldn't follow into the fifth one, that it made sense not to keep it any longer. So I'll get to a couple of the fun facts before we start. I don't understand how this happened, and you know I'm an I'm accountant by trade, but uh, I I've never worked for Hollywood production. But Warner Brothers claims to have lost 167 million on this film, despite this large margin it had over its budget. Its budget was at max 200 million. I know there's marketing costs, and you don't make all the money back from overseas. You make a smaller margin, but they grossed almost a billion dollars and yet they said they lost like over 150 million so okay a couple casting things Saoirse Ronan uh, who at this point was in atonement she auditioned for the role of Luna Lovegood but was considered too young Uh, she would go on to be in many films including Lady Bird and Little Women so she's really big now but she almost could have been Luna I have to say that Ivana Lynch is beyond brilliant in this role so i appreciate sarah c ronan uh but ivana lynch in this she was born to be luna lovegood and another interesting fun fact with casting uh helen mccrory who plays narcissa malfoy was initially cast as bellatrix lestrange but she had to drop out because she was uh, pregnant at the time uh she would come back and play helena bonham carter's sister so that's how it all fit for part six. So, And that's another one where I feel like Helena Bottom Carter like really owns this role as Bellatrix. So things work out as they should. So before we get too far into this, this is going to be a spoiler-filled reflection. If you haven't seen Harry Potter in the Order of the Phoenix and you would still like to, pause this podcast, head on over to your library, rent the movie, I guess it's called checking out of the library. Check out the movie, maybe the book while you're at it, bring it home, watch it, and then come back and chat with us. Just one other thing to note is these are our opinions. We are Harry Potter fans. We are popcorn lovers. 
we see movies on occasion and we may not remember every single detail. We may not be perfect with capturing everything. So if you have a correction for us, please let us know. But other than that, just note that these are our opinions that we are talking about as we reflect on this movie. So babe, you want to tell us where act one starts? Sure. I decided we're going to split this up into four acts. Uh, the first act being the hearing, which goes from the start of the film all the way through Harry's trial. So right off the bat, like the, the intro, you know, we see the Warner Brothers and the Harry Potter title. It's quiet. Like the music eventually comes in, but you almost feel like, it, wait, is my TV on mute? Um, and you see these dark swirling clouds and that's a hint for the Death Eaters, you know, like moving around, but continuing the, the darker and darker mood of the the series speaking of darker and darker mood harry is definitely feeling a lot of things so he's at the the playground you see some families kind of get ready to go it looks like darkness is kind of coming in and dudley and his gang shows up and it's not dudley that says something to harry or starts this harry's the one who picks the fight with dudley and I think this really shows, I mean, it shows a couple of things. It shows like the, how Harry's character has changed. He's not just going to, you know, sit and take it. But the fact that he instigates this, he's got a lot of built up anger. And this is an easy target to take it out on is, is Dudley. Because at the end of the day, Harry knows Dudley's weak. Yeah, I mean, Dudley has his friends with him and they're making fun of Harry. But Harry pulls his wand on Dudley like, Right to his face. I mean, his the friends don't understand what's going on. They laugh. Yeah, because like, they don't get it. Yeah, and but Dudley gets it. He's you know he's he stops talking at that moment, and of course the clouds get really dark. But right before that, there's a couple interesting things. You can hear Harry listening to the news. Like the news is like overplaying in the audio at the beginning. It's like he's waiting to hear about Voldemort. And it made me feel like like a superhero, like Spider-Man or Batman would listen to the radio waiting for crime to happen. Well, the other thing is, too, with that is they hint, they they mention it briefly when he does get to 12 Grimald Place, but Harry hasn't had a copy of the Daily Prophet. He's been completely kept out of the wizarding world. Nobody's telling him what's going on in any of the letters they're sending or anything like that. So Harry is entirely in the dark and this is his way of getting to to see if anything's going on, if anything's so significant, so noticeable. He has no freaking clue that the ministry's turned on him and has been bashing his name and bashing Dumbledore this entire time. So he's kind of doing what he can and this is also contributing to his anger after what he saw at the end of the goblet of fire and then being kept in the dark and back from everything he is just fuming and of course like you said when he takes out his one that's when the um that's when the clouds start to to come in and he's I mean, it it looks like he did something, but obviously he didn't. So everybody starts to kind of back away because, you know, whether it was a storm or not, it looks very ominous. And you see Harry and Dudley run. They're not necessarily working together, but they both have the same objective, which is to get away from whatever the creepy thing is there. And it's interesting to kind of see them run side by side after years and years and years of being kind of at odds i guess or you know dudley just being a dick because that's what he was raised to to do to be towards harry and 
they're running together towards the same objective. So at the the park, right before the clouds get dark and Dudley, the interaction with Dudley, you see Harry looking at a mother and her son at the playground. And I think this is the same playground where he sees Sirius for the first time. It may not be, but it just, I like that callback. And, you know, just a reminder how much he, how alone he is. He doesn't have a mother or father. Everyone's like keeping their distance from him this year. So it's like a, a really sad reminder, you know, as he sees a little kid with their their parent. And, you know, the parent's like, are you okay? You know, like no one asks if he's okay. Harry has it rough, this movie. So that running scene you're talking about, I love how the camera switch, switches to handheld right there to express like the urgency of their running, you know, their, their frantic desire to get away from whatever this dark cloud. It starts raining and it gets really cold and they find their way to this really dodgy you know underpass and the the panels start to freeze and it's like well where have we seen that before boom the dementors show up and they not only go after harry but they also go after dudley and harry is able to i think he jams his wand in the dementor first and then uses his patronus charm to get rid of them and then of course mrs fig shows up and this is the first movie that we get to actually meet her. She had a presence in the books earlier on, but uh, she, and I don't I actually don't think they say this anywhere, but she's a squib, just like Filch. And she, Harry like kind of gets nervous because he doesn't know that she knows anything about the wizarding world. And she's like, don't put away your wand. You know, they might come back. And Harry's so confused, but he helps Dudley get back to Four Privet Drive while you know, Mrs. Fig is saying like, you know, Dumbledore asked me to look after you. And Harry is just so confused because he hasn't fucking heard anything. I love that this whole time you haven't met her before, but she's been this plant, like a, a next door neighbor that maybe Harry would spend, like that would watch over Harry when he was young when the Dursleys couldn't. And they probably didn't want to watch over him. So they would push him off to Mrs. Fig. But she was a plant for Dumbledore this whole time, just so they had eyes on him uh, as he grew older. Um, and she comes in, she doesn't necessarily save the day, but kind of brings Harry back to reality, gets Dudley back to, uh, Privet Drive. And when they get there, you see Uncle Vernon, like he's like sneaking ice cream out of the, the fridge or something, or the freezer or something like that. But he's also wearing like socks and sandals and this like very like, I don't know, summery kind of look, but just, he looks a little ridiculous and he's like holding a spoon out at harry and it's like justice oh yeah because a, a howler comes which doesn't yell at harry but it may at the point you think harry's just got expelled from hogwarts the ministry like a very polite like howler and i love how it ends with hope you're doing well you know like just like you know like typical email correspondence manners man uh manners. but uh yeah because of your actions earlier this evening you are now expelled because he used magic in front of uh, a muggle it doesn't matter he was trying to save dudley's life well can you imagine harry's perspective on that how like confused he must be he has no idea that the wizarding world is turning on him he just saved dudley's life dementors fucking attacked him in little whinging and now he's expelled from hogwarts like, what the hell? And you see, he goes up to his room. After that, he gets in there. He has no clue what to do next. And he slams something. And he drops the picture frame of his parents. 
and I think that the glass gets shattered a little bit. And I think that that's like kind of symbolism for Harry is cracking a little bit. He's fucking fed up. So he feels like he's back at square one, but he didn't want to ruin his parents' photo. And also Hedwig cries because it's shocked that Harry's like starts slamming things. And he's like, sorry, Hedwig. You know, like he realized he, he was out of control for a moment. But then he goes to sleep, has like a, you know, that dream of Cedric uh, dying again. And he wakes up and someone is breaking into his room. The Dursleys have gone to the hospital at this point. And we get to meet the real Moody and a few new characters, which is part of the Order of the Phoenix that Harry's going to learn about. Also, the title of this story. Yeah. And in this, you can kind of see Tonks' ability when, like, Moody kind of, like, calls her by her full name, Nymphadora. She's like, don't call me Nymphadora. And her hair turns a color, which is, like, the first kind of sign that she's, like, there's something special or unique about her. And then, yeah, like you said, you get to actually meet the real Moody. And that's how Harry recognizes that these people are okay. Because other than that, I don't think he's seen anybody else. You also get to meet Kingsley Shacklebolt, who is an aura with the ministry, where uh, Mad-Eye is retired. Oh, uh, uh, Tonks is also an aura as well, right? I think so. And I, but I think that the unique thing about like Kingsley is he works with the Minister of Magic, but he works for the Order of the Phoenix kind of in secret, so nobody knows. So he's like their, you know, ear in the, the Ministry of Magic. That's right, because you see him going to arrest Dumbledore later on. I love that. So they take brooms to go to 12 Grimald Place, and there it's a really cool scene. They're flying over London, but there's a funny moment between, like, Harry and Tonks, where, like, maybe it looks like he's, like, admiring her and, like, kind of smiling at her as they're going, like, over the water. And it's, it feels like he wants to kind of, like, impress her, but she sees that they're about to head towards a boat, so she, like, you know, veers off, and then he's like, oh, shit, and he has to, to veer off as well, which is, it was kind of, like, a funny moment. Before they start flying, Moody's like, uh, if one of us uh, gets killed, don't break ranks. You know, like, he's very clear, like, the mission is just to get Harry from point A to point B, and it lets you know that that threat of Voldemort and his followers is out there. We don't see them for a while, but... You know at any moment they could attack. I mean, the Dementors just came in and, you know, tried to get Harry. And they also tell him that his expulsion is uh, now, like, uh, shelved until a hearing can happen. Uh, so they get him to Grimmauld Place. I love the score of them flying during that scene. It's another uh, track that conveys the, the wonder of, like, being in the air. You know, there's many tracks like this, but it's another one that has a different feel to it. As they're flying through London. And then you get to see kind of that the 12 Grimald place open up and the muggles in either of the apartments or the houses next to them are unfazed by it. And this, you know, this thing opens up and it's, you know, wonderful to Harry. It's also wonderful for him to be like back in the wizarding world, not with the Dursleys. And you know, they go in, everybody Everybody in the Order of the Phoenix just kind of goes about their business. They go into the meeting room and Mrs. Weasley comes out to kind of, you know, welcome Harry in. But you can see like when she sends him upstairs, like, you know, dinner will, will happen after the meeting and sends him upstairs that she looks kind of like run down and exhausted herself. So you can see in there how this the whole situation is taking a toll on others too. Right. I mean, Harry's the primary target, but he has a whole network of people who feel that and they 
probably been spending all summer devising plans on how to combat Voldemort's return. A lot of people view uh, Harry's claim as false, but they know it's not. They know it's true. So they're doing everything they can to counter that. Because they experienced the first war, you know, when they were much younger, where they had, you know, infants as kids. Um, what I love about this is you get to see the order. I mean, like, the order is new for Harry, but involves most of the adults that he's known. You have the Weasleys. You get to see Sirius again. You get to see Lupin again. Um, you can even hear Snape's voice during the meeting. So, like, all these adults in Harry's life are commiserating together. It feels like an all-star club of the adults that have influenced him so far, that are still living. I'd say they're planning together, not necessarily commiserating. They're kind of, they're trying to figure out how they get ahead of this, especially with the ministry bringing them down. So Harry goes upstairs and his way, he runs into Creature. This is the next house elf we get to meet. And Creature just kind of reminded me a little bit of Gollum in the scene, I think as we watched uh, Lord of the Rings fairly recently, where he's kind of like muttering to himself and kind of hateful. Um, so I definitely saw that comparison. What I love about Creature, it's, uh, well, what do you mean? What do you love about Creature? It's kind of like, well, Dobby's like a nice friendly dog that's a, you know, a little dim-witted, but is like lovable and will be by your side all the time. A little mischievous. Creature it's like that old dog's like, oh, I don't want to go pet that dog. It's a very nasty dog. Like, no, uh, may bark at you or just like not good with sharing. You know, you could see like later on he says, oh, the boy who stopped the Dark Lord. They weren't Death Eaters, the Blacks, but they supported what Voldemort was doing. Like they thought, right? And Creature probably just imbues the, this well, is the Black family house, Sirius right? Black's brother, Regulus, was a Death Eater. So, and that's, I think Creature was very loyal to Regulus Black. So that's, and then that's where it comes from. It definitely speaks to the Black family and their beliefs uh, when you get to hear Creature talk. Because aside from Sirius, because aside from Sirius, we don't know any of the other Blacks. So it definitely kind of gives you an insight into who they are. And from there, Harry goes up to this room where as soon as he opens the door, Hermione gives him a hug. Ron and Hermione are, it's an interesting relationship, at least in the beginning of this, between the three of them, because it feels like Ron and Hermione are trying to use kid gloves with Harry, like they don't know how to handle his anger or don't know how to help him in the situation that he's experienced, which is, is fair, it's unprecedented in their lives, and trying to, like, you know, Harry's like, well, you know, I, he's pissed at them, you know, he hasn't heard anything from him, nobody's filled him in, and here they are at the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix, he has no clue what the fuck the Order of the Phoenix is right now, but the, here they are at the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix while he's had to stay at the Dursleys in the dark after watching Cedric Diggory die and Voldemort come back, and, and it, I mean, you can't blame him. He's mad. And then people say, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, we, we were ordered not to say anything. We really wanted to. But, like, essentially for Harry's own good, we have to keep you out. So he feels isolated, right? There's a, like, he was isolated all summer. And, but now he's with them. He still feels that a little bit of that isolation because no one will, will tell him what's going on. Dumbledore did it to protect him, I suppose, or maybe... Again, like we've been talking about with Dumbledore, for the greater good in order to not allow Voldemort to realize that connection earlier. But 
it had a really big impact on Harry. So Fred and George show up and immediately showing off one of their new goodies that they're working on. They have this ear that's like an ear, like an eavesdrop tool, right? They have like uh, the one ear that they keep with them and they lower down the other ear so they can hear in the meeting. And you can start to hear stuff, but then of course Crookshanks shows up and takes one of the ears and leaves with it. I love how like Crookshanks was going after scabbers in part three. It's like it was helping the cause. But here is it just, she's just being a cat. Oh, is it he? Crookshanks is just being a cat here and taking one of the ears to play with. Um, and you see Hermione's like, oh, bad, bad cat. You know, like she couldn't stop the, the cat from acting on it. I thought that was cute. But then Harry gets to meet the order who stays, you know, some of them leave immediately, but he gets to meet the rest of the order. And he gets to see Sirius again, which he's so psyched for because, I mean, aside from communicating with him through the fire last time, you know, he he hasn't seen him. So he's he's thrilled. And this is Sirius's house. And this, this a lot of this movie is focused on like, you know, we'll, we'll be together after this. And just so heartbreaking. We'll get there, though. So... Sirius wants to tell Harry more than everybody else wants Harry to know. And as the, you know, as they're kind of talking about things and filling Harry in, Sirius is talking. Moody tries to, you know, he's like, Sirius, Sirius, like to try to stop him from saying more than he should. Molly, when she starts to hear this, stops cutting things. And then, you know, if she gets upset, like, that's enough, you know? And I mean, that's a very motherly thing of her to do. She's trying to protect Harry. He's been through a lot and he can't know everything. You know, she she says like, why don't you just induct him into the order if you're going to do that? And Harry's like, good, I'm freaking ready for this. Like, let me, let me do it. I think Sirius, after seeing what Harry could do in terms of saving his life in the third chapter, the third uh, year, I think he, I think part of him wants to, reconnect with his long lost friend again because he sees so much of him in harry but he knows that harry is very capable whereas everyone's trying to coddle harry he wants to let harry be free and act with them harry deserves to be able to be with them on this i can see your point that he knows harry's capable i think more so though it's his desire to have his friend back because think about it this way in when harry when james and lily died Sirius had, you know, kind of been with them and talking to them up until that point. And then he gets put away in Azkaban where it's almost like his life was on pause and he was just in a cell for, what, 12 years? And then when he comes out, he meets Harry Potter, this grown version who looks exactly like his best friend that died right before he went in. And and Sirius was in Azkaban too. So, you know, that kind of after you leave that, I can imagine it, it's, it does a number on your mental health, you know? So for him, he does see Harry as like an extension of James. And that's the thing. He, he wants Harry to be involved. He, he has kind of a fatherly approach to it all. But at the end of the day, he does see Harry as James. And Molly keeps telling him, everybody keeps telling him he's not James. And Sirius has a really hard time understanding that. I like that dynamic between the two of them. And you'll see more of that connection between these two characters is essential to this story. So after that, uh, Harry is taken to the Ministry of Magic for his hearing with Arthur because Arthur works there, right? It's so great seeing him experience the muggle world. 
he just has this look of wonder on his face and excitement and like trying to get through um i think they call it the tube there the tube um like gateway into it the and turnstiles to get into the subway right yeah and he is just so amazed by it and then like harry's kind of like over it just showing him how to get it's it's so great i love arthur weasley the weasleys in general like they all have very distinct personalities and quirks and this is one that i enjoy from arthur and when they go into the the phone booth it's like i'm just gonna use my muggle money right here like it's, he's so fascinated with everything doesn't know how to use it very like fish out of water like kind of like when we see in like the movie elf it's very much like that uh, like he knows some things but not enough to understand the context of how muggles use him even though he's so fascinated with muggles that's such a great comparison to elf for sure uh so they're there at their in the entrance to the ministry of magic two things like i'm getting like penn station flashbacks from whenever i have to go to the city for work and it's so crowded and everyone's like talking and like people coming in from the flu powder network and it's like so chaotic and i noticed the architecture for the ministry it is very cold slate black bricks almost like lining the walls so it's a very cold unfeeling place but it has like that majesty you have that really ornate sculpture in the the, the fountain area it's got like a wizard and like a fairy and then like a couple other creatures so it's like very interesting to see um and then you see all the people that arthur knows he's saying hi to them someone has like a creature in the box in the elevator it's like oh we, we use the paper airplanes now because we use owls before <laughs> it was a huge mess to clean up and this is harry getting to kind of see this adult side of the wizarding world for lack of a better term he's known hogwarts he's known that world but this is what you do after hogwarts not everybody but some people they choose to work for the ministry of magic so he's quickly brought to his uh hearing which of course was rescheduled at the last minute for a much earlier time in a different location. But luckily, they're there early enough so Harry gets in like with five minutes to spare. Uh, of course, before he goes into the meeting, to add more suspicion to Fudge, you see him talking to Lucius Malfoy. Uh, I wonder what that conversation was about. Maybe helping push Harry to be expelled. Um, so he's brought in. And I love the visual of him alone versus all these people. It's called the Wisgama. The Wisgama, yeah. Okay. So it's this like full-length inquiry hearing and you have fudge there as the head and has to be at least 50 other witches and wizards as like judges to decide on if harry should be expelled or not so it's a pretty big deal he's all alone he knows he's innocent but fudge is like getting him to answer certain questions and manipulating so it's like oh he used the magic you know that's case closed you know He's not letting him speak. Yeah, exactly. He's trying to influence uh, Harry's and the judge's opinions of Harry. Luckily, Dumbledore also showed up three hours early to the ministry. And, you know, Dumbledore brought the, the star witness, Mrs. Fig, to let them know. And, it, I mean, this is interesting in the books. Since Mrs. Fig is a squid, squid, she's, she's a giant squid. Since Mrs. Fig is, <laughs> she's a fire squid, yeah. Since Mrs. Fig is a squib, she can't actually see the Dementors because Muggles can't see Dementors and Squibs can't see Dementors. 
So that makes it an even harder of a case to prove, but she talks about how the Dementors made her feel, and that's what resonated with them. And, you know, as much as Fudge tries to shut this down, Dumbledore has, like, the the insights where he he says, Harry can't be at fault because it was a life-threatening situation. Mrs. Fig's evidence proved that Harry actually was in a life-threatening situation, and... Fudge says to him, like, laws can be changed if necessary, which is fucking crazy because why would you change the law just for one kid? And I think that, like, Fudge's losing his patience kind of a thing is really what convinces most of the Wismagot that Harry is innocent. So Dumbledore owns this scene. I love the way he just comes in. It's like, oh, uh, you found out we were discovered. Yeah, by a happy mistake, I arrived here three hours early so that's good and fudge is when harry brings up the dementors like oh fudge cuts him off like i'm sure that would have been a well-rehearsed story like he's like oh you're just gonna lie um so when dumbledore brings up the dementors like this life-threatening attack it's like oh there's no coincidence like uh, you know like that dementors don't just hang out in muggle neighborhoods they don't so it wasn't an accident it's like it wasn't a coincidence dumbledore says that they came here then all of a sudden this older not an elderly woman but uh who we find out is umbridge who looks sweet by nature but we find out she's quite the devil maybe even worse than uh voldemort in some respects but she's terrifying (laughs) yeah she's got that very high-pitched voice she's wearing pink it's like i'm sure i've misunderstood you professor dementors are all under control of the ministry of magic but it sounded for a moment as though you were suggesting that the ministry had ordered the attack on this boy and Dumbledore's response there is just brilliant. He's like, of course not. And I imagine the ministry is going to launch a full-scale investigation as to why two Dementors found themselves in a muggle suburb, like, to that effect, and then kind of shuts it down, which is just, like, Dumbledore has his moments throughout this movie where he gets to shut Umbridge down, and those are always very nice to see. She brought up a good point, but he countered with an even greater point. If, if it's probably not the ministry's fault, but it is their responsibility if the mentors who they have control over are loose. You know, that it's on them. And that's the first taste of umbrage that you do get in this movie. You, you know, see her kind of speak up where nobody else except for that one other woman actually spoke up to ask questions. So more, more to come on umbrage. But the woman who's kind of just like, doesn't want to play games here. This is all in favor. And then, of course, Umbridge raises her hand to get Harry expelled. And then majority of the Wismagot votes to keep Harry in school and not change any fucking laws because that's crazy. And um, the trial's dismissed. And then something interesting happens. Dumbledore, you know, successfully frees Harry of this charge. And then Harry wants to go talk to him. But Dumbledore immediately without looking or talking to Harry, just leaves. As if Harry's not there or Harry's not trying to talk to him. And Harry's left like, what the hell was that? While his intentions may have been good, it really did kind of serve to piss Harry off even fucking more. It, it kind of relates to what I think is one of two main themes of this movie. Actually, probably the bigger of the two, which is what Harry's going through. And it, I think it kind of relate to like real things people go through not just because they're dealing with Voldemort or something like that or uh the Ministry of Magic trying to shut you down but there's some real human emotions that Harry's dealing with that 
I think make up the the main theme of this story. Okay, so Act Two, Dumbledore's Army. So this goes from Harry's journey to Hogwarts to Christmas break. I love we get to see Sirius here. I think they redid his dog look to make it's an actual dog this time versus a CG dog. Um, I love how shaggy and like looks like a homeless dog. It was cool that visual where he goes into that waiting room and you just see his silhouette go from dog to person. I like that as well. So Harry catches up to him. So why is Sirius out in public? Because he's officially a serial killer on the loose, you know. That's what the Ministry deems him still. And especially because the Ministry has been blaming Sirius for a lot of the stuff that's actually Voldemort, it's easy for them to just blame mass murder or Sirius Black. Rather than say, oh, Voldemort's back and get everyone crazy. It's like, oh, it's just this one guy. It's all him. Sirius shows Harry the photo of the original Order of the Phoenix back during the original, the first war, uh, which is 14 years earlier. And you get to see Neville's and Harry's parents. And there's a few other people, but it's like, oh, this person, she died two weeks after we made this photo. You know, you get to see Neville's uh, parents who are happy and Harry's parents are also happy. It's like another piece of something that neither Harry or even Neville, and we'll get to that part too later. I love that they brought that up because I was afraid that you told me about Neville's stories. Like, are they going to have that included? They do have it. Not in part four, but for here. I, had, I did have the thought that is Sirius trying to set them up to do something big? Because he tells them later the intel that they're getting from the Ministry is that they don't want them trained in combat because they think Dumbledore is forming some sort of army. So was Sirius giving him this picture, trying to set him up for doing something like Dumbledore's army? He says to him, like, I suppose you're the young ones now, hands him the picture and almost like kind of like passes it on or if anything, maybe like plants that idea a little bit. And it was Ron and Hermione's idea in the first place. But, you know, perhaps that, you know, it it was all part of of that plot that Sirius had to get them to do something to take action because he believed Harry could. I think it's one of, this is the other one of the two main themes I'm thinking about. I'm not sure what you have and I I what you have in mind for the theme, but one of the two themes here is the passing of the torch. Uh, not that the older generation's too old, but it helps to have another generation ready to fight this war. And Sirius is definitely pushing Harry, not in a malevolent way, but encouraging him to take up arms, not, not be afraid to fight. So one theme for this story is passing the torch from older to younger and the other main theme you can see when harry's on the train and he's staring out the window hermione runs sit down hermione looks over sees harry and it looks like she doesn't know what to say to him so kind of looks back over to talk to ron they don't know what to do with him i think like a real clear thing of what harry's going through is depression triggered by trauma in his life and i think that's the biggest theme of this story dealing with the mental health you know after something so horrible has happened to him of course he's already lost his parents but that happened when he was an infant he doesn't remember that he saw someone murdered in cold blood right in front of him and then the bane of his existence is now back and no one believes him and he feels so alone no one knows how to talk to him and then because of this he feels like he needs to further distance himself from everyone else 
he's shutting down. This is what a lot of people deal with. Like they don't know how to talk to people anymore and they just shut down and they're depressed. And I, I see that so much in Harry. Yeah, he definitely pulls back. I think he, nobody quite gets it. And, and that anger is kind of part of his way of dealing with it too. And he's so quick to take it out on anybody who, who does something kind of, you know, wrong, I guess, or something that he doesn't like or appreciate. And I, I think that's a great, point that you make that that, like this is the the theme that he's dealing with and so you know following them on the hogwarts express like you're saying ron and hermione just don't know what to do and you see that a lot throughout this they kind of give harry the space that he needs because they don't want to be like in his face or anything like that but they they feel helpless this is their best friend and he's really struggling malfoy walks by makes a comment harry like snaps is ready to physically attack him to the point where ron had to pull him back and they just they don't understand anymore but then you meet luna and this is i think like a brilliant introduction to her is because she's kind of that like voice of reason in harry's like to harry because she's removed she's an outsider she doesn't want to be really part of anything she doesn't care to and she tells she gives harry the insight that he needs and it's like you know unrelated to what he's going through but it's the words he needs to hear at the time so he's looking he sees the thrustrals and he's like what is pulling these carriages hermione is very concerned she's like harry as always nothing's pulling these carriages and Luna's like, don't worry, you're just as sane as I am. Like, I, I, I love that. And that's how we get to meet her. She's reading an upside down magazine. And she's just so just like at peace. Like, I want to be Luna Lovegood and just the way that she handles the world. I very much appreciate that. I was trying to understand, like, what, what is that energy that it's like, it's familiar, but it's also not familiar. The energy she has. And the best way I can equate it is it's like somewhat of this Alice in Wonderland vibes where it's like nonsense is what makes the most sense. You know, she's reading stuff upside down. She can see things people don't see. She talks about imaginary creatures who are stealing her stuff. Like she, you know, you see her uh, barefoot because Nargles, whatever they are, stole her shoes. But we know it's mean students. Mean students. Jerks. Would go on to take all of her possessions by the end of this year. But yeah, it's kind of that nonsensical absurdity of her character. That's like, oh, it's it. It reminds me of Alice in Wonderland. And she's just so unaffected by everything else. I mean, like, she stands up for Harry. She like, there's a little bit of like, um, and I think we're you're getting like a couple scenes ahead, but there's a little bit of like fervor in her voice when she says we believe you that you know who is back like she she cares about things but she's unaffected by things that other people say and do and she just lives in her own world sometimes and and i love that that she's just like she doesn't care what other people think and then and how you meet them is hermione introduces her with the nickname that everybody around school uses for her this is loony lovegood and then she realizes what she's done luna doesn't even she's not phased by it whatsoever and you know apologizes and then then proceeds to tell them that her necklace is keeps away the nargles and i love that yeah so you would see so as harry's becoming distant from his friends and you know adults that he's called family 
like Luna is like this odd inspiration to him, a new friend for him, you know, who under, seems to understand him and like really kind of builds him up in certain ways, in certain parts of the movie. So we get to the, the feast, right? Uh, Hagrid is missing and we'll connect back to that because remember Sirius was talking about recruiting the dark side recruiting non-human creatures you know so Hagrid is definitely part of that struggle to win certain alliances so he's not there and of course we have a new defense against the dark arts professor but it's that woman from the trial Umbridge who feels like she deserves a right to give a speech after Dumbledore. And we haven't seen anybody but Dumbledore give a speech. Not just a speech, but she cuts off Dumbledore during his speech. And a kind of, he kind of just lets it happen. But he's like, you can see in his eyes, like, where are you going with this? I think he had a feeling this might happen, where the ministry would come in. They appointed the, the professor. And now they're going to just kind of slowly take over things. So that's like a perfect symbolism of what's about to happen this year this was her like very cutting way of asserting her dominance and then you can see that filch is a big fan of umbridge he's like like i think he like claps along with what she's saying hermione spells it out for everybody that the ministry is interfering at hogwarts now and hermione looks very displeased i think filch likes it because it's like neutering the students the students like abilities are taken away and feel filch has this ability to feel superior again because he's a squib he can do nothing against these wizards i mean if a wizard attacked him like a student like that would be horrible you know they would be expelled probably but the wizards have the upper hand on him but now he feels like with a bridge that you know he can issue like more severe punishments like you heard him in the earlier films like, oh, I wish they would bring back the old torturing ways of, you know, centuries ago. Umbridge does that here. Uh, we'll get to her torturing. But she says during her speech, like, I'm sure we'll all be real good friends here. It's like really pandering. It's like, oh, th- there's no way. This feels like corporate BS, you know. And then she says, progress for the sake of progress must be discouraged. Let us preserve what must be preserved, perfect what can be perfective, and prune practices that ought to be prohibited. Uh, so she she makes it very clear that she wants to change a lot of things here. What's also interesting in this scene is that Harry, Ron, and Hermione are kind of sitting away from everybody else, and there's a distinct gap between them and everybody else. I think it's interesting that Fred and George are on the side of the gap. They don't kind of stand up for Harry, even though they know maybe they don't want to get involved or whatever. But a gap between Harry and all of his people he called friends. And then he goes to the Gryffindor common room and he tries to say, you know, like, hey, Seamus Dean, did you have a good holiday? And, you know, Dean answered, but Seamus like takes it out on him and it's like no my mom didn't want me to come back and it's because of you and your lies to the minute like that the ministry is saying and the daily prophet and and all of this stuff and harry is fuming he is so tired of it and that's when ron kind of comes in and steps up which is like i love the scene and i love when ron kind of comes in and is the hero and it's the only way that he knows how to help harry right now they are being very gentle with him because they don't know how to, to help. But this like felt like a way where Ron could step up and say, yeah, of course I believe him. And it takes a long time for everybody else to get on board with that. But Harry, he's just 
it, it's one thing after another for this poor kid. It's interesting. Seamus, who's largely a comedic background character, comes in and now represents the distrust of Harry. Because we were talking about it in the last story, how a lot he got a lot of bad PR from Rita Skeeter. And now he's claiming Voldemort's back and the minister does not want that news out because he doesn't want people panicking. So people are going to side with the Daily Prophet because they say, oh, Harry Potter really is just instigating like his claim to become more popular and that he and Dumbledore are working together so Dumbledore can take over the ministry. Like he become the minister of magic. Um, so this is all just a ploy, a plot to take over. So people don't believe Harry. He has to deal with the threat, the real threats of the ministry and of Voldemort. But then he also has to deal with this public opinion of him. And that only furthers his depression because he has a, another Voldemort-type dream. I mean, there's there's a real connection between them, but I think Voldemort, besides just being the big bad, also is like that voice in Harry's head kind of urging his depression and his sense of aloneness. And he wakes up and Ron's just kind of there, like looks hopeless, like like I wish I could help. And I think that that's like when you're you're you have a person in your life who's really struggling like that and nothing that you seem to say or do is really helping that's kind of what you feel this like hopelessness like i don't i don't know you know i want to help you so bad but i don't know and then to make matters worse they go to defense against the dark arts which is typically harry's favorite class and they get handed books that look like they're like children's books, like things that you would, you know, like ridiculous, like out of date magic to, or out of date cover and title and just nothing that's going to have any practical defense against the dark arts knowledge in it. And it for sure doesn't. It, it feels very cleansed and neutered because it's all defensive theory. There's no practicality of it. And we learned that because they do not want the, the students arming themselves and be able to, you know, launch a revolution against the ministry. Umbridge is very devout in her support of the minister. Like, that's her main goal. And she views these students as potential threats. So she wants to disarm them as much as possible. You see that Hermione, then Ron, and then Harry are the ones to speak up. She doesn't say anything when Hermione speaks up. She doesn't say anything when Ron speaks up. She says something when Harry speaks up. So that students are going to raise their hands if they're going to speak in my classroom. And Harry's like, uh, there's some real threats like Voldemort. And she's like, well, there's some things that have been out there that I think you should know that a certain return of someone, and this is all lies. And Harry cannot stand that. So he like continues to talk over her and then she screams, enough! She gives him detention. And then you really get to learn who Umbridge is. Fucked up, tortured detention. And Harry does go to her office for this fucked up, tortured detention and there's a framed photo of fudge on her desk so like aside from the cat plates that are moving around and she's very odd aside from everything being pink there's a framed photo of the minister of magic on her desk yeah a black and white photo of him amongst all the pink you know she likes her her tea even her tea is pink because the sugar she was putting in was like pink as well and then she has that, that special quill that she makes harry write with doing lines you know like bart simpson she enjoys it it's like it's twisted how much she enjoys it you can see that she gets pleasure from causing like i don't know 
punishing children who don't do what she or what they're supposed to do. And she's also kind of gaslighting Harry into believing that he deserves to be punished. Like, and, and I think she tries to do that with a lot of the children going forward. They obviously know they're not wrong, but she's really trying to convince them that they are wrong so much so that she's going to have that engraved into their skin. So this is like a typical like behavior of like someone who's an abuser of children, you know, like telling them they deserve to be punished and convincing them and making them right. I must not tell lies, even though they are telling the truth, but just kind of torturing them to believing corrupted version of the, the truth, essentially. And while Voldemort, like you brought up earlier that like Umbridge is kind of I, I wouldn't say worse than Voldemort necessarily because Voldemort has like a bigger reach and is more powerful, but is definitely up there with how fucked up her approach is to all of this. But what she's doing is, I don't want to call it legal. I mean, I don't know if the Minister of Magic knew exactly how she was torturing students that they would allow it, but she's allowed to do this stuff with nobody questioning her. When McGonagall does question her, her job is threatened. So she really uses manipulative tactics to get her way. And and she's willing to, to do whatever she wants to have order. She can have do all these horrible things with impunity because she just says the ministry needs to take corrective action. So everything she's doing, no matter how horrible it is, it is justified because she is trying to like complete her mission. Fudge wants to keep his position, so having his, you know, eyes and ears and decision-making skills in Hogwarts, like having Umbridge at Hogwarts is his way of making sure that Dumbledore doesn't get too powerful. So right after this, Harry deliberately tries to hide, like, his torture wound from uh, Ron and Hermione, who easily pointed out, um, it's like, what's that with your hand? No, your other hand. It's another example of him trying to distance himself. Like he's trying to deal with all this on his own, all these horrible thoughts he has. He's doing it all by himself and he's becoming further and further depressed and hateful and angry. And he starts to think like, am I becoming like Voldemort? Like it all started with Cedric's death and his characterization has changed dramatically. He he can't be happy anymore. His innocence has been lost. He cannot be a child anymore. It's different. It's not like, you know, the Chamber of Secrets where all this is going on. He can't still play Quidditch. We don't actually see Quidditch in this movie. In that scene that you're talking about where, you know, Harry, um, Harry's friends are trying to convince him to stand up. Hermione says, you know, well, if the parents knew what was going on and Harry snaps, like he's like, well, I haven't got any of those, have I? And he he's pulling away he feels like he's on his own he he wants to be with Sirius for sure he writes that to Sirius he tells them that he feels alone and then he goes to go try to find Hagrid because Hagrid's always been this like source of you know like I don't know comfort for him there Hagrid kind of gets it it's it feels like Hagrid's one of the adults who they can speak to like freely like they can't go to Snape Definitely. They can't go to McGonagall. Like, as nice as she is, like, she wouldn't truly understand them. And Dumbledore is evasive. So Hagrid's, like, their buddy who is also an adult that they can always go to. But he's not there this year. And that just adds to his feeling of being alone, right? Yeah, absolutely. But then what's nice is he goes, he sees Luna with the Thestrals, and they have that, like, a nice conversation. Luna has such a different perspective on 
all of this and she says to harry you know my father and i believe you that you know who is back and we you know she says we believe you in dumbledore she tells him says it in a way that maybe he has not about before but if i was you know who i would make you want to feel like you were alone too and then that like clicks for harry he realizes that this is what like what's happening is like the difference between him and voldemort and they talk about this a little bit later too is that he has those friends he has that you know made family not you know necessarily the one that voldemort took from him but he has created his own family in these people i love that luna is the one that kind of sheds light on this for him and then you see more of her quirkiness and kind of how she's different from everybody else in this scene but you also like see that she looks at things differently too and that's what clicks for harry i think at this point like her words as confusing as they might be they help steer him in a different direction because everyone else doesn't know what to do but she she saw someone else die too her mother died when she was nine because her mother her parents apparently are very you know experimental right her mother died trying to create her own spell right in front of her when she was nine so she gets trauma so that's like a a connection for them you know it's The thing is, too, Luna's not trying to help Harry necessarily. She's just talking to him, whereas, like, Ron and Hermione are, like, you know, gentle with him. They don't want to upset him anymore. They want to help him. Luna's objective isn't to help him. She's just talking to him. As she would talk to anyone else, but no one else understands that. And that resonates more with Harry. Yeah, perfect. I love the connection that he builds with Luna here. So McGonagall does find out about the torturing. In front of everyone, she calls out Umbridge, similar to how she did Bardi in the last one, where Mad-Eye, she made a Death Eater, like, say, okay, I'll stop doing that. But she can't do that for Umbridge, because Umbridge is like, oh, are you questioning my actions? That, that means you're questioning the ministry. Oh, I think I would have to make a lot of changes around here, and that starts the process of all these educational decrees. Like, McGonagall... She had a good point, but then once the ministry is brought in, she like she can't do anything. And then Umbridge starts to kind of investigate all the teachers, which she takes out a tape measure to measure the music teacher. She Flitwick, right? Is that Flitwick? Yeah. Um, Warwick Davis. Yeah, they. She measures him. How cruel! Yeah, she measures him, and then forces Trelawney to give her a prophecy, and then even Snape, who's just not wanting to deal with her bullshit and it's like so you applied for defense against the dark arts teacher first but you didn't get it and of course in a very snake way obviously i love your impression so much <laughs> keep doing it um yeah so she's uh interrogating uh each of the professors and is also putting up these educational decrees and it becomes kind of a little bit of humor because phil tries to get longer and longer ladders to pin him up and he's like accidentally almost hitting the students a few times and then she's like there's a couple kissing and then she like moves him apart and then she tight like there's guys with uh their shirts untucked she makes sure they're tucked and their ties are up funny thing about felch is that somebody with a wand could do that so easily but he gets up on that ladder umbridge forces trelawney to just give a prophecy so trelawney makes something up like bad things are coming your way and of course, Umbridge is like, oh, okay, that's lovely. And then the next scene is Trelawney getting sacked. Um, and 
it's so sad to see and it's it's i noticed that the patil twins are crying in the background and you don't see that in the movies as much but they really took a liking to divination i think from the third one and they were big fans of professor trelawney so they're so upset i i miss that detail a lot of other times i was watching it but I, i caught it this time around and i liked um getting to see that 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 was carried through I'm glad that they have these short, like they can't cover everything in these movies, but they have the short little reminders that of the book continuity in there, you know, like these characters, the Patel twins, like they, they, they love Trelawney. So that to see their favorite teacher go would be really sad. So I think she's still fired. Dumbledore comes out as like, while you may uh, remove people from positions, you cannot ask them to leave the premises. That is under the headmaster's rule. I'm the headmaster. Before that, uh, McGonagall says, this is horrible, and tries to like soothe uh, uh, Trelawney, who I don't think they like each other very much, but that's not really shown in the, the movies, right? Yeah, I don't think McGonagall is Trelawney's biggest fan. I think she's more like Hermione, a little more practical, but she's not going to stand for anybody being mistreated, absolutely. And this is another time after Dumbledore like gives his word, Umbridge is like, we'll see. And Harry tries to catch up with Dumbledore to see him again. And once again, is like shut down. Similar to how Fudge acts around Dumbledore. When Dumbledore asserts his authority, uh, Umbridge is like, okay, you can do that for now. Because like, we'll take that away from you too. And Dumbledore avoids Harry. And when he's leaving, he says to everyone, because all the students are watching, it's like, don't you have some studying to do? Like this is a little more of the harsh Dumbledore that Michael Gambon gives, you know? sure Dumbledore is fed up enough too but uh after this they realize that they need to do something they're not learning like there's a threat out there and they're not learning what they need to learn so of course Hermione thinks that Harry should teach them he's the one who's been out there and faced the big bads before he he's faced on multiple occasions these things and Ron and Hermione have been there to assist but Harry's been the actual one to go and face him he agrees to it i like that harry's like you know i'm not i i'm not a teacher i'm not going to be good at this and then ron says well better than old toad face they during a hogsmeade trip go to the hogshead which i believe is the pub that dumbledore's brother owns and you see a man with a beard and a goat there which i think is like a hint to aberforth dumbledore and a bunch of kids actually show up they didn't think anybody would really show up and people are hesitant to follow along with this and harry's about ready to give up but it's luna who says wait is it true you can conjure a patronus charm and i love that it's luna again because it's her kind of being the one to keep him I don't know if grounded's the right word, but just kind of keep him on the path that he's on, you know, or like towards on the right path a little bit. She's obviously not influencing all of his decisions, but just that kept him there. And that made him realize people were actually serious about it. What I love about this scene is you're bringing back everything Harry has done before. He fought off on his first year, uh, a professor at Hogwarts with Voldemort attached to him. Then his second year, he went up against a basilisk. His third year, he went up against Dementors. His fourth year, he did the Triwizard Tournament, was able to survive against a, a full, fully formed Voldemort again. So all these lessons he's learned in the prior films, it's not just Villain of the Week anymore. He gets to bring all of those in, all of the things he's learned beyond the other students, 
and give that to the other students so he can form a following of his own. You know, they're not going to learn from uh, Umbridge. So the best thing they can do is learn from each other. He's going to share these things he's learned with these other students. They don't share the naming of the group process, but like you said, Harry wants to have a following his own. He doesn't want people to follow him necessarily, but that's why they choose to name the army Dumbledore's army because that fudge believes that that's what Dumbledore's building here this entire time. So let's let's give it to them. Let's do that. And obviously it comes back to bite them in the ass later or i don't know maybe it saves them by calling it dumbledore's army so then now they just need a room to practice in and of course as they're coming back umbridge sees them and her next uh decree is no student gatherings no after school clubs essentially and it's not till neville's walking in the halls that he sees this room just appear out of nowhere and introduces another lore element of the hogwarts castle the room of requirement which shows up for people who are in need of it and meets their specifications. They have their own practice room that they can get into without worrying about Filch and Umbridge and Slytherin. The, was it the, they set up the Inquisition squad, yep. Inquisitorial squad, so they can get away from them and practice and learn to fend for themselves with advanced magic, probably even better if there was an actual real deal professor for defense against the dark arts like they they're actually taking the matters into their own hands and not relying on an adult to help them and that there's something very moving about that and the scenes where they're learning they're pretty cool they have that like dummy set up to practice with and harry's teaching them they're going up against each other um it, it, those are, are fun scenes to watch and kind of see the growth there I saw this um, on TikTok a week or so ago. I didn't actually know this, but in the fifth, in this movie, when Harry is teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts to his peers, he's wearing like kind of cardigans, like Lupin would in the third one. And I, he was, I guess it was Daniel Radcliffe's idea that Harry would want to do that to emulate his favorite professor. And I loved that because he does wear those kind of cardigans this time around and tries to be Lupin, somebody who he admired. And in the third movie, we didn't get to see a whole lot of Lupin's teaching, but it's something Harry learned a lot in that class. I I love that it's like a very subtle nod to someone he's inspired by, but he's telling these other students, like every wizard, every great wizard we you've ever heard about, they started here. They were nothing at first, but they learned, they fought their way to, you know, make a difference. And this is us here building ourselves up. And I love that you get the, I don't know if it's this scene or another scene later when they're learning Patronus, but I love this tracking shot where you can see Harry looking around and making sure everyone's form is okay. I think it's later when they're building Patronuses. Um, It's like, it's a one shot. You could see Ron and the Weasley twins and then Ginny and Hermione and then Luna and then a few of the other students. Oh, and Cho, because he's he's got the hots for Cho. It's one thing we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, because... It's a, it's a minor detail in all this, but you brought up Ginny, um, and I've noticed that throughout the Dumbledore's army teachings, Ginny tend, is like way more powerful than even she expects. And I know movie Ginny isn't as good as book Ginny, but they do try to show that a little bit, very subtly. Maybe not the the best way that like she you know can really make shit happen. Like she's a pretty powerful witch and. 
Harry kind of notices her a little bit, but I don't, you know, he doesn't see her as anything more than Ron's little sister. And he's kind of fixated on Cho, like you said. There's a couple scenes where you do see Hermione mention like, well, you know, one good thing came from this. Cho couldn't take her eyes off of you. And the camera does show Ginny kind of looking displeased. And then right before holiday break, when Harry goes to kind of talk to Cho, everybody's leaving to leave Harry and Cho alone. Ginny looks back at him and kind of looks like a little like sad and disappointed. And I think that's what kind of leads her in the direction to kind of like, well, I'm done waiting for Harry Potter in the next one. But um, I, I like those small details. It's like you said, the things that they couldn't include in the movies, there's nods to them. Yeah, they don't have the conversation, but they have the character making the facial expressions. Like, So if you're paying attention to detail, you can see they're trying to include those things then in there, even though they're not the most important to the plot. I want to bring up the score here. There's two themes introduced. There's the Umbridge theme, which is like, it's kind of peppy. It's like, it's a little upbeat. But it's also like, it's, uh, there's a sense of piercing to, to it. Friendly looking as she appears, uh, she's also can cause a lot of damage. Um, and then, of course, you have the Dumbledore's Army theme, which is, I need to listen to that track again, but uh, it, it's, I, I enjoyed that theme as well. When I think of this movie in terms of score, those two themes really pop out. I love the idea of them kind of taking matters into their own hands and becoming something more and kind of the humor of them evading Filch, who keeps on trying to like catch them in the act, but then the remove requirement doors like sh- uh, close off, and then he can't find them again. I will say, as we end this act, we end it right before Christmas break, where Harry has just you know kind of kissed Cho, and he's come back to the room to talk to his friends about it, and. Hermione points out how Cho must be feeling, you know, she's sad about Cedric, she's confused about liking Harry, and guilty for kissing Harry, and her mom, you know, is, might be losing her job at the ministry, because Umbridge keeps threatening it, and Ron's like, one person can't feel all of that, they would explode, and Harry also kind of in the scene looks like, he's like, I didn't think about how Cho must be feeling, even though Harry himself is feeling a lot of things this time around, sometimes I think it is hard to step outside of yourself and recognize what other people are feeling, but then, you know, Hermione says her, her famous line, just because you have the emotional range of a teaspoon, And, you know, they all laugh. And it is a nice moment for Harry where he got to have that real teenage opportunity. He had his first kiss and he came back and he talked to his friends about it. And then, you know, they laughed and they had a good time. And then as we get into Act 3, shit gets real. So I love that scene you just brought up. One, it shows like other people other than Harry can go through stress. Like Cho's going through losing Cedric as well. And her mother may be losing her job. And she's also going through the teenage years of her life, always stressful. Harry finally gets to have a a laugh with his friends, you know? In a film, it's so dark, and him, and it's all about him feeling alone and depressed all the time. He gets to have a laugh with his friends, you know? And it's so important to have that scene like that, because it comes back in a a very quick flashback later, but this scene is so important to his, you know, well-being. And you notice, like, his depression talk has decreased, because he feels like he has a purpose now, helping his fellow students learn this advanced magic. So this is a great step forward for him. But of course, Act 3, there's a huge step back. And we'll get to that. It's funny that you said that I was uh, listening to an audiobook recently. It's called Don't Keep Your Day Job. And uh, she says in the book, though, that the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's purpose. And I think that that's 
spot on here for Harry is he has purpose again. The Order of the Phoenix won't let him take like be part of it. Dumbledore won't talk to him. He wants to help. He wants to do things, but nobody's letting him. And now he has the opportunity to do something and make a difference. And I think he's starting to feel not whole again, but just, you know, better. Like things are moving in the right direction. So we get to act three, Oculumency, which goes from Arthur's attack from Nagini all the way through the end of Harry's lessons with Snape. So from that lighthearted moment at the end of the last act, you have a darker moment where Harry's dreaming and he sees familiar things, things that he's seen before, but he also sees Mr. Weasley there. And from this perspective where he's a snake slithering on the ground and then attacking Arthur and that, you know, it, it follows to him waking up Ron and McGonagall are escorting him to Dumbledore's office and, you know, Dumbledore's on to what's going on and, you know, says to Harry, he's like, what perspective did you see this from? Harry won't answer, of course. I mean, the rest of the Weasleys are there. He doesn't really want to say, like, I attacked your dad because he feels him kind of, like, guilt towards that. But Dumbledore is, like, busy trying to, like, you know, tell the portraits to go where they're supposed to go and so on. And Harry's just fed up and I think he's still maybe feeling that anger and hatred from that connection with Voldemort and he yells at Dumbledore he says look at me what's happening to me because nobody is giving him answers and he's just and, and that's Harry's fucking fed up this one that that's just what it is end of end of reflection Harry's fed up yeah uh so that depression that anger is a resurgent here and he gets Dumbledore to turn around and the look on Dumbledore's face is one of, like, pure shock. And he's like, oh, things have are much more advanced than I thought. Um, and Snape is literally right there. He apologizes to Snape's like, I need you to do this right now. Like, I can't even wait till morning because we're all in jeopardy if this doesn't get handled. Because of Harry's actions, Arthur is saved. But Harry immediately starts, on Christmas, his oculumency lessons, which is like kind of like counter mind control right? Ability to fight off mental manipulation from others, specifically Voldemort, because they have this mental connection, which is something as Snape tells Harry that he would often, that Voldemort would often torture his victims in their mind. You know, there's the physical torture with the Cruciatus curse, but he would also fuck with their heads until they're at the point where they're so hopeless that they're like, please kill me. And that's when Voldemort would do that. Voldemort brought that up in the last film when he returned. So this is right on point absolutely and i mean harry just he's come off of this like traumatic experience again and you know has to sit through this with snape and then snape's digging into his mind and seeing things he probably doesn't want you know anybody else to see like it's private moments and then we're going we're back to grimwald place and the holiday season and one of the things i do really miss in this and i I guess i understand why they couldn't include it was the trip to saint mungo's to see arthur and that's where you also learn a lot uh, about neville and seeing his family i think you get to see yeah you get to see lockhart again and what happened to lockhart and um i really really love that scene in the book so sad it's not in here they're at the grim old place in the movie and there's a toast to Harry because Arthur says he wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Harry. But Harry feels like he's 
responsible. He feels guilty for this. And that like toast, he's just, you know, like it's, it's an awkward thing for him where they're toasting to him for saving him, but he feels responsible. And he actually confides in Sirius after this, which is interesting because he doesn't normally confide in adults, especially about like anything he's feeling or what he's fearing. Ron and Hermione, of course, but not often adults. Not McGonagall, very rarely Dumbledore, maybe Hagrid, but like it's, you know, it takes a lot for him to say something. And for him to open up to Sirius, he really does feel a strong connection to Sirius. And Sirius tells him, you're a good person who's had bad things happen to him. And that like, you know, it's another one kind of like Luna, where that perspective, I think, means a lot to Harry. I think that conversation is so important, not only because it helps Harry, but Harry views Sirius as an equal. Like certain, some of the adults, like they're kind of don't understand they're on a different level than harry so he can't have that real conversation with them with Sirius, he can confide he's the only person he can really talk to about this the weasleys i don't he's afraid they wouldn't understand it's like i attacked one of you i didn't save you i attacked you but with Sirius, he can have that and of course at the end of this conversation Sirius says something and i love how you say like when something it's like bittersweet moment you're like stop stop uh series like when all of this is over we'll be a proper family which is heartbreaking because oh, foreshadowing oh. his death at the end of the film oh hurts so much interesting thing i want to note here is is this the first year harry actually uh, goes away for the holiday break he usually spends christmas at hogwarts in the movies yeah i'm yeah. trying to remember if in the books he does actually like go to the borough or something like that but yeah it might be the first holiday yeah that he spends away so yeah they do return to hogwarts it's it's coming to springtime you know what's interesting though like about harry spending that time away is normally hogwarts is like a safe haven for him not you know necessarily always safe but it is this place where he feels comfortable and umbridge's presence there the lack of hagrid's presence the i guess the lack of dumbledore's presence in harry's life like it's made him feel like Hogwarts isn't that comfortable space anymore. Grimwald Place has become that comfortable space because that's serious. That's where, you know, he can find Sirius's family. And and that's I think an important thing, like where he spends his holidays is where he feels most comfortable. I agree. Um as Harry st- uh, says in this film too, you know, like Hogwarts is not a home anymore. You know, you constantly bring up how oh, Hogwarts is dangerous, like Oh, no safer place than Hogwarts, but yeah, it's still really dangerous. Something that we've always assumed to be true, Harry finds his place, his home at Hogwarts. It's not that anymore. It is depressing to watch this film, you know, because you see from Harry's perspective, you know, like how beaten down he is. Uh, The trauma of uh, Cedric's death and having Voldemort return, no one believing him, like really ostracizes him, really makes him feel so alone. So of course, when we return to Hogwarts, they have a bit of happiness because Hagrid is there. Ron and Hermione go up to tell Harry that Hagrid's there when he's with Cho. So obviously he's spending more time with Cho. I think something that's interesting in the books that they didn't include here was that Cho was getting very jealous of Hermione in the books because like Harry spends a lot of time with her. She's a friend of his. And I think Cho was confused about that friendship, I guess. Um, just interesting. They don't bring it in here. But they go back and or they go run down and see Hagrid. Harry is just like, I have to go. Like he's not waiting around to explain anything. He's missed Hagrid. And of course, 
As a reminder, because they're back at Hogwarts, Umbridge is already there interrogating Hagrid of why he's been missing all this time. And kind of lays on to Hagrid, like, don't expect to stay here too long, because I'll fire you too, like I did a few other people. Like, she's interesting making even more changes around here. So we also learn that there has been another breakout of Azkaban. You see that. You get to see Bellatrix Lestrange for the first time. And then it kind of goes to the shot where Neville's reading the paper and reading, you know, Bellatrix Lestrange on the cover. And he looks pissed. And something to note, like, I think Tom brought this up in the last episode, is that it's very clear sign when somebody has been to Azkaban when their teeth are all janky and you can definitely see Bellatrix Lestrange has that going on. So this is kind of that the Neville Bellatrix connection that we start to see. Who let Bellatrix out? Was it the Death Eaters? It doesn't show who did it. It's just like there's a giant hole now in Azkaban. I think the Dementors are on Voldemort's side at this point so there's like there's nothing really keeping any of the Death Eaters still at Azkaban so Voldemort like promised them more riches of souls essentially like join me and you can have whoever you want not just prisoners and of course uh you see the the Death Eaters here the Death Eaters and the Dementors and it cuts back to the Dumbledore's army and they're training with their Patronuses now but of course all of that is cut short because the gig is up Umbridge has found their lair with the help of Cho Chang, who everyone now hates, including Harry. I think they probably had a code that no one gives up our location. To be fair, I think she was giving Veritaserum. They didn't know that yet, right? Yeah, they didn't know that. But it also just wasn't meant to be for Harry and Cho. So Harry and Cho get dragged to Dumbledore's office and Dumbledore's confronted by the Minister of Magic and Umbridge and Kingsley Shacklebolt and... Uh, Dawes, I think, is the other guy. And don't forget, who's been hanging around Fudge this whole time, but they don't really bring it up. Percy Weasley, yes, one of the Weasleys is actually with the Ministry now, siding with the Ministry over his family. That's a big plot point in the book. Yeah, so Dumbledore takes responsibility for all this. He claims that he asked Harry to start this in his name, and Fudge is like, okay, well, you know, you're going to have to come to Azkaban. And Dumbledore's like, yeah, that's that's not happening and disappears with Fox like right away. And I love Kingsley Shacklebolt's line here um, where like after Dumbledore gives all that sass and disappears, uh, Kingsley says, I know you don't like him, Minister, but you can't deny he's got style. And that's a great way to describe Dumbledore. So he's gone. And now Umbridge is in complete control of the school, so things only get worse from here. There's no DA anymore, which had kind of been their escape for a while, this like opportunity to practice and to or to to learn magic to kind of work together to prepare themselves. And now that's gone too. And you can see Harry's depression is really coming back, the main theme of the story, where without army he's built, he's like, oh, maybe it wasn't worth it, like all this wasn't worth it after all. Maybe after all this, I should just go at it alone again. And nobody knows what to say to him again. Here's a heartbreaking thing that comes up. Um, Harry walks by. He can hear Fred and George talking to like a first year Gryffindor. And the, the little kid's crying. And they're trying to cheer him up. It's like, I know it's painful, but you'll feel better. Like you'll you'll get over it. And Harry can't stand that. He can't stand that. Umbridge is winning. He's She's allowed to torture children i know he's still technically a child but this is like a 10 year old 11 year old boy 
who's being tortured the same way with writing lines into his skin. But neither can Fred and George, and as goofy and lighthearted as they are, they don't take it anymore because you see them get so pissed after, which influences what they do next. But before that, once Dumbledore goes, Hagrid knows he is not long for Hogwarts after that, and he has a secret that he needs to share with somebody just so that his little brother is going to be okay. And he takes the trio into the Forbidden Forest, and they meet Hagrid's little half-brother, Grump. Who's uh, terrifying, but he's also, like, kind of like Dopey in Snow White. Like, he doesn't speak, but he's very well-meaning, uh, you know, but well, may accidentally harm you. He picks up Hermione, but he doesn't intend to do her any harm. He's just kind of like, oh, a little human I can hold, you know, like, so, like he's like a, like a child. Like he's a very toy. interested. Yeah. And I love how Ron stands up for Hermione. He's like ready to protect her and he grabs the stick and like comes forward. Like anybody who ever says Ron isn't brave, like he has his moments where he is brave. So, um, he, yeah, but he, I love that he stands up for her. And the, but it's Hermione who just uses her stern voice, the same voice we have to use on our puppy. But it's Hermione who uses her stern voice to get it to like to get him to stop and listen to her. And then you can kind of see that Grop respects her a little bit. The only thing I don't like about Grop is the CGI is a little like it's a, it's a you can tell it's a, a fake creature, but you know it's it's serviceable. Uh, I'm not like a CGI expert, but it's just I can tell when it doesn't look real and when it does. So, uh, yeah, Hagrid's half-brother. And Hagrid brings this up to them because his brother needs companionship, not because, oh, they need, he's, like, Grop's, like, the tool to, like, beating the enemy, but Grop needs company. He's looking over Grop because when Grop was in the Giants, the Giants were being mean to Grop, right? Because he's kind of a runt among yeah, giants. he's got no family left or anything except for Hagrid. So, and, and of course, that's like, you know, Hagrid, the way that he is. And in the trio's face, you can see that they're like, like they see how much it means to Hagrid. And I mean, especially Harry too. He knows what it's like not to have any family. And then Hagrid discovered this half brother that he has. So he, they agree to do it. And we see Harry's last occlumency lesson uh where he turns the tables on snape actually like snape's seen some pretty private stuff at this point and then harry turns it on snape and he sees the side of snape that snape does not want him to see but he also sees a little bit of his father and they don't get into it too much but that's not the light that you really want to see your father in being such a bully and his at least from the perspective that we saw, it was entirely unprompted. Um, yeah, you see Harry's father in flashback when they were students at Hogwarts, and he's uh, torturing, bullying Snape, and it's very mean-spirited. It's not like Snape egged him on there. Uh, James is really, with Sirius, like, cheering him on. They're trying to hurt Snape, you know, bring him down, which causes the lessons to finish, because Snape, feeling like his privacy is, like, the very reason why he's so bitter to Harry is because of that. He lives with that every single day. And he never got a chance to, you know, resolve that. And now he has to deal with Harry and he has to watch over him. And he's so pissed. He's on the good guy's side, but he has personal issues that he still has he hasn't been able to clear. And when Harry digs into that, Snape has he can't deal with that anymore. He sends Harry away. Their lessons are done. I think he's conflicted too because while 
Harry's dad. And again, this it comes back to Harry looking just like his dad and how that Sirius perceives him and how Snape perceives him. But at the end of the day, Harry is still Lily's son as well. And Snape loved Lily. So that's where his, he's conflicted, where he will protect Harry, but he also doesn't like Harry. And that there's, it's a whole thing there. But even when Harry reaches out to him for help later, when he's trapped in Umbridge's office and wants to go save Sirius, they don't show it in the movie, but Snape actually did go. I mean, that's how the, the Order of the Phoenix ended up in the Ministry of Magic anyways, is because Snape did go and get help. But, you know, Harry kind of perceived that as, well, he's just not going to do anything to help us. He doesn't, you know, Snape's not a, a good guy. He doesn't have Sirius's best interest in heart. He's, you know, willing to let Sirius die. So right before this, the lesson ends, like Snape is going on Harry because Harry's not moving along far enough in their training, right? You see Snape like show up in Harry's memory of his father, you know, uh, seeing him in the mirror of Eris and then Snape shows up. It's like, oh, is this supposed to be a heartwarming memory? Like Snape just immediately shows up in that that sacred memory from the first movie. And then he goes on to berate Harry, specifically his, his connection to his dad. It's like, you're just like your father, lazy, arrogant, weak, pushes Harry to discipline his mind, you know, and then he says something that's very key life isn't fair your father knew that and your father frequently saw to it because he wanted to make life very unfair for snape you can see how bitter he is over that and how he has to help harry and he does love lily as well so there's that conflict what a complex character and there's more just to snape's story there is and he i mean it for what he the role that he plays in the books it's such a small role in the movies too that like it doesn't even like it just barely scratches the surface so occlumency is done and we head into our fourth act where the trio are taking their owls yes so this is the fourth and final act the the lost prophecy i call it um goes from the owls to the end of the story uh so fred and george you saw them earlier it's like they've had enough of umbridge's torture no one else can help them this is fred and george's final year right they've they can apparate they they've done everything so this is in their farewell as students of hogwarts they decide to go out on a literal bang and interrupt the owls that uh umbridge is overseeing um with their fireworks display uh and i i love how they finally have umbridge like on the ropes like she's taken completely off guard and doesn't know how to react filch shows up with a broom and i just love that like he's supposed to clean up some mess but he can't clean up the fireworks and display so the fireworks literally push her out of the room like that dragon's chasing her and she's running away i love that so much and then it like closes in on her of course it doesn't really cause her any bodily harm it just scares her and all of her uh decrees that were hung up on the wall fall to the ground i just love that visual of her reign ending and everybody's cheering of course even the the teacher who's just so Flitwick. yes yeah i yeah. love that and then harry in chaos has kind of like a, a vision or his connection to voldemort which it should be an indicator that something's up because typically it happens while he's sleeping and this is when he's just kind of in the middle of the day and he sees that Voldemort has Sirius, so he's, you know, freaking out. And they decide that they're going to, you know, get answers. They're going to check in at 12 Grimmauld Place, the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix, make sure everything's okay. 
and they take advantage of the distraction to go up to Umbridge's office because that is the only one that's not being monitored by the ministry, the fireplace there, so they can use the flu network if I didn't actually say that. But Umbridge catches them. Uh, so, okay, so we have our final showdown with Umbridge, who's had it. Um, she even says at one point, like, I really hate children. But that's a, that's the next scene. Um, so they she has... Um, inquisitorial squad so like filch and draco and all the other slytherins like gather up harry and his his closest friends you know uh who will join him in the the very end of the story which is ron hermione neville Ginny, and luna that six will hold together to the end of the story um umbridge tries to use uh Veritaserum, I think at first, right? Yeah, Snape says, we're out, because you used it on Cho Chang. You used the last one on Cho Chang, and they realize, like, oh, Cho kind of was acting, like, uh, under duress. Like, she but couldn't control a, herself. It was a minor plot point, too. Yeah. It wasn't even, like, they're like, oh, Cho didn't rat us out. It yeah. was just, you know. They kind of look at each other, like, oh, oops, you know. Um, so with that, and then he gives the code that, oh, Padfoot, they have Padfoot, you know. The Ministry of Magic, so Snape will go and tell the Order to go head over there. They have Padfoot because he got the, the message from Voldemort, as we saw earlier. Uh, they did bring up earlier, is like, pray that uh, Voldemort is not aware of that connection because he could use that to manipulate Harry. So, which exactly what happens. Hermione questions it, and that's why they're going to double check. But because they can't use Veritaserum, Umbridge is going to use an unforgivable curse to get it out of Harry. And Hermione, absolutely desperate, decides she's going to make up an entire story. So she leads Umbridge to the Forbidden Forest, where she claims Dumbledore's secret weapon is. So she was expecting to come up against Grop, but Grop had kind of gotten free of his trappings. And instead, they meet some centaurs who you've seen kind of this thread throughout the whole movie that the centaurs aren't pleased with the ministry because the ministry has been limiting the space that they have. So this is where the ministry's like restrictions and everyone starts to backfire in them. You see it against the students and Dumbledore, but on the non-wizarding community, you have the centaurs being attacked. Their uh, yeah, territories have been restricted. So she sees them and it's so menacing. You see them in the distance and you you see they're armed with bow and arrows like they are not here to play they will attack and that the, they are willing to kill harry and hermione there too because they're you know collateral damage they shoot arrows at all three of them and umbridge like blocks them you know blocks their she arrow. blocks it for selfish reasons sure and you know she puts a spell on them so that this like rope comes out and binds one of them and i love that it speaks to who hermione is when she gets down there she's like stop stop like she's begging for the centaur who she doesn't even know just because it's like it, it it's hurting him that the centaurs that were shooting at him and that's who hermione is she cares about the the animals and all of the creatures and thinks everybody should be treated fairly which is another storyline that we're missing out of this the society for protection of elfish welfare which is spew and uh and, and so the grop actually does come and he takes uh he, he picks up umbrage and he's kind of just amused with her you know like like he was amused with hermione and then all the centaurs come up and try to attack umbrage when she's hanging by uh, 
you know, Grop's hand. And then and, Hermione's pleading with the centaurs, like, please, he doesn't know what yeah, he's doing. Like, yeah, he's, like, essentially, like, a like a three-year-old, like, at intelligence. He's, like, holding umbrage for, like, amusement, and he starts getting attacked. Like, an arrow goes through his arm. Uh, I don't know if it hurt him that much, but he's clear, like, I I don't want to get involved with this, so he just kind of drops umbrage, and she gets taken away by the centaurs. To what? I have no idea happens next, but we know she survives because she is in the final film, or the final two films. But I love how this final act has two endings, two resolutions. We finish the umbrage plot. You know, umbrage is taken away from the scene, and now we head to the ministry for the ultimate showdown with the Death Eaters. Harry's about to do this alone, actually, and then everybody's like, and I feel like they say this a lot, where Harry's like, I got it, this is my responsibility. And everybody else is like, come on, Harry, we are not going to stop. Like, we, you know, we they, all of his friends or the people that he keeps closest to him has this desire to do good, to follow the right path to do something. Nobody's going to hide away in the background and be like, okay, you go off to the Ministry of Magic. I'm going to go chill in the Gryffindor common room. Like, everybody's willing to step up and do something and they take the thestrals there and harry goes to the department of mysteries where he knows that door is he'd seen it before and heads to where he believes voldemort is holding Sirius captive but there's nothing there until neville notices that there's a, a prophecy with harry's name on it and so harry himself picks it up and that's when we see death eaters show up where it's very clear that this is Lucius Malfoy, by the way. He pulls his wand from his sheath because that's a Lucius thing. And then I just love the moment where they're all facing Malfoy with their wands out. And then the other Death Eaters start to show up around each side. So they all start turning with their wands out and they've all got it protected from every angle. And it's just, it's it's kind of a scary scene. They're surrounded and... I, it's kind of like how do they get out of this i love the new death eater look it looks much more sleek and almost like a cultist you know like they're very ornate masks which they can pull away with magic which is great when they're on their way to this showdown with the death eaters they're riding thestrals right only luna and harry can see the thestrals so the rest of them are flying on like what the fuck it's not they're flying on a broom they're flying on what looks like something is completely invisible. So they have to completely trust that. So everyone else, like I was like, are they like so scared about what's happening or they just have to trust it? They don't show their reactions, but I just, that's just something that popped into my head. Um, and then right before they see the, the Death Eaters, you actually do hear a little bit of the prophecy. You hear Trelawney's voice and you get to see how important she is to the whole story, even though she's this bumbling professor. Um, I actually recorded a little bit of the the quote and it's uh the and the dark lord will mark him as his equal but he will have power the dark lord knows not. I don't know if it's clear in the movies but it could either be Harry or Neville, right? Cuz he's born on the July 31st or something like that. Yeah, I think Neville was born the day before Harry and it's the the full prophecy. It, you know, indicates when they would be born and it was, it could be either of them, both of their parents were ours and that's how, why Bellatrix was sent to torture Frank and Alice Longbottom. Another interesting thing from that line is, 
I don't know how you interpret it this way, but I think it could also relate to the fact that Harry becomes a horcrux of Voldemort himself, the hidden power that Voldemort will give it to Harry accidentally. If Voldemort's going to try to kill Harry, because he's going to give take away his own horcrux if he tries to kill Harry. So Harry has this hidden ability that neither of them know about at this point still. I took it that way too, that it was the, the horcrux that, you know, that Voldemort un- unintentionally created a horcrux when he tried to kill Harry. So, uh, and then the most important quote that we hear at the very end of the film, because they reiterate this a few times, for neither can live while the other survives. So that means they're going to have to kill each other. One will die by the other's hand, essentially. And uh, Lucius reveals a little bit of exposition. Why do they need Harry at the ministry? Why do they lure him in? Not just to kill him, but they wanted to. In order to retrieve the prophecy, it needs to be taken by the person whom... It refers to right so it's either uh, Voldemort Harry or who found it I don't think it could have been Neville though because it was labeled as Harry okay. and it technically was about Harry so Harry picks it up no one else could have picked it up I guess it would have yeah. been stuck there. and now that it's been picked up that's why Lucius wants it and he tries to tempt Harry with the answers the answers that Harry's been looking for this entire time the answers that nobody has told him but Harry obviously doesn't take the bait and they all kind of battle these death eaters like these are you know a bunch of 14 15 year old kids and they're fighting death eaters and they hold their own pretty well until the moment where it looks like all hope is lost and then that's when the order of the phoenix shows up i love how neville's able to use petrificus totals on someone else that is another cute callback so they get into this weird room while they're evading the death eaters the veil room like that archway that only luna and harry notice that there's voices coming out of it because they've seen death before okay so they, they all get surrounded um they're all held at one point and then harry gives up the prophecy to protect his friends to lucius right and it turns black but it was just like interesting that harry was willing to give up like he his friends were more important than the mission right oh for sure and that's I think what makes Harry and Dumbledore a little bit different is Dumbledore, I personally don't think Dumbledore really, not that he doesn't care, but that he's willing to make sacrifices in order to do this. And I don't think Harry is. So as soon as he hands it over, the order actually shows up to help and they want to try to get the kids out of there, Dumbledore's army out and the order comes in. But Harry stays to fight. Lucius drops the prophecy He's devastated <laughs> because now he's disappointed Voldemort again. Harry stays to fight with Sirius. And it, it's so, like, I love the visual. It's so fucking cool when the Order of the Phoenix shows up. You've seen the Death Eaters kind of come around in this black smoke, and the Order of the Phoenix shows up in these white smoke, and it just looks so freaking awesome. I love how the music swells here. You see Lupin, Tonks. Uh, Moody and Shacklebolt, they all show up to, you know, and of course Sirius is the first one to show up. And instead of like using a spell on Lucius, he says, stay away from my godson. And he punches him in the face, like to make it really personal. And then, yeah, we have this giant fight, you know, Bellatrix and all these other uh, Death Eaters are fighting against the Order. And then Harry and uh, Sirius exchange a few words. And I love how Sirius says, you've done beautifully here let me take it from here, you know? Like, you've done your work, but let the like the adults handle it. Harry does not want to stay. Like, of all of his friends, Harry's the only one that fights with the Order. They have that great bonding moment together as they fight off Lucius. They disarm him, and uh, 
they knock Lucius out for a moment. Sirius forgets and he says, nice one, James. And it just, oh, oh, oh. it hurts so bad because literally the moment after that, Bellatrix surprise attack uses the killing curse on Sirius. Her cousin, which they brought up earlier when they're showing the black family tree with Sirius uh, burnt out by his own mother when he was 16 when he left his own cousin kills him and he falls into the veil i don't know how i like i miss it or if i read it too fast but when i first read this part of the book when i was a kid i I, he just like kind of fell into the veil and i didn't quite understand what that meant and i was like no he's he's not dead like i i did not want to believe it but you see harry now has a reason to use unforgivable curses he never did before even in the last one when he knew them and he was fighting against voldemort he was not going to do that but he is fucking pissed and he's been pissed this entire time but now he has lost the last bit of family he's ever had and he is gonna use the Cruciatus curse on Bellatrix. Like it immediately goes silent after Sirius's death and he's held back by Lupin. And from what I have heard, like you don't get the audio of this, but his scream is so like blood curdling and so painful to hear. I'm interesting what it sound like, what it, what it sounded like, but just that, that raw emotion that he had expressing his like anguish after seeing He's seen Cedric, Cedric die, but Cedric was more of like, I don't want to say like a co-worker, you know, like Here. someone, they were just starting to form a bond, but Sirius is like close to the same family and again, killed right in front of him. Are you getting teary? You no, like you're getting no, teary. no. I just like, I'm really passionate about this. And of course he sees uh, Bellatrix smile slip away and he does use the, as you're saying, the Cruciatus curse on her, which is a big thing for him to do. And then she's like, almost like a child. She's like, mm, you know, like uh, that's part of her personality. I kind of view like Bellatrix is the perfect film version of Harley Quinn. Like I, but what Bellatrix does, like I see that that's Harley Quinn for me. Not all there. Yeah. I'm trying to, yeah. yeah. Loyal supporter to someone truly demented. Now Voldemort and Joker are not the same character, but I feel Harley Quinn and Bellatrix are that makes sense she taunts him she says i killed Sirius black i killed Sirius black and harry like despite trying to use the cruciatus curse it's not quite working and that's when voldemort comes in and says you have to mean it so if you were going to use the like if you were going to kill bellatrix i would take him to a whole nother level while he's angry and he's willing to hurt her for what she did that that would next level like him actually killing somebody and i don't know if he's quite ready for that and that's also something that voldemort picks up on but really before harry can have any sort of fight or interaction with voldemort dumbledore steps in harry like starts to become aware of his surroundings lets the anger let go and he goes to attack voldemort and voldemort's like knocks away harry's wand and then you're right dumbledore comes in and i love his line to really bring down Voldemort using his 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 birth name and he says pity of you to come here tonight Tom and now the fight is on you get to see Dumbledore show off his skill against the greatest dark wizard it was such a cool scene like using the elements the fire the water the the glass the shadow like I think there's like this dark matter that um 
Voldemort tries to use. But yeah. The sand, like yeah. all of that that comes into play. The glass actually shatters this like large tapestry of Cornelius Fudge, which was, I think, brilliant. It was it was nice to see that done in that moment too. What I like about that is when Fudge's like banner is destroyed, it really shows that whatever he was doing for the story, it no longer matters. The story is evolved beyond Cornelius Fudge. And when Fudge figures it out, he knows he's done too. Like that part of the story is done. Voldemort now is just the clear main threat here. And his battle with Dumbledore is a great visual splendor. Um, they put their CGI money here and it still holds up. So it's kind of a little bit of a stalemate, right? But Harry's still hanging off to the side. Voldemort decides to possess Harry. I think in the books he asks Dumbledore, like he, in Harry's perspective, he asks Dumbledore to kill him as if he's like begging Dumbledore to to get rid of Harry, thinking that it's Voldemort or, or whatever the case is there. But Harry's being, he's focused on all of these negative memories and negative feelings, almost like the, the Dementor, what that brings up for you. And Dumbledore says to him, it's not how you're alike, it's how you're different. And that starts to change Harry's memories and he thinks about his friends and Sirius and all of the things that he has that Voldemort doesn't have. And that's how Harry kind of pushes Voldemort out of his head. And I think that's Voldemort, besides, as I said earlier, besides being a, a physical threat to Harry, is also the manifestation of Harry's depression and possessing him and making him focus on his dark memories. And the only way Harry can get out is by focusing the good he still has in his life. All his friends, his friends are family. Like all the good moments he's had with Hermione and Ron, and even to a lesser extent, like Neville, there's still so much worth fighting for. And that's Harry's last line. That's what differentiates them between um, themselves and Voldemort and the Death Eaters is they have something worth fighting for. And it's, it's those good moments, those connections with people. And I, I love that that's what brings him out of his, you know, his depression, his slump. This whole year has been horrible for Harry, but now he really understands what's at stake here. He really knows that he doesn't have to be alone. The whole point of it is to not be alone, and that way he can be successful. And for a brief moment, Voldemort leaves Harry and the ministry shows up and they actually see Voldemort for a very split second and then he disappears. And I like this tactic in the movie to tell a little bit more of the story where they're using the Daily Prophet headlines. And normally the Daily Prophet isn't reliable, but now that they're not blaming Harry for telling lies or not that now that they're not accusing Harry and Dumbledore of telling lies, they're really telling what's going on fudge is going to have to to resign you know Voldemort is back and like I thought that that and the umbrage is um under like questioning right now like I thought that that under umbrage is under investigation right now and I thought that was like a really clever way of kind of filling in the gaps before you get to the end of the story before you get to Dumbledore and Harry's annual chat quick way to convey the exposition for ending this story you know fudge is out umbridge is in trouble um and it's very clear now the whole wizarding world knows that voldemort has returned so the war is on and then yeah, you know, we have a, a ending scene with harry and dumbledore before harry talks with his friends 
about the prophecy, right? Yeah, he asked him, he's like, one of us is going to have to kill the other in the end. And that's when you realize like things are getting serious. It's not just these one-off things anymore. Obviously, it got serious when Voldemort was back, but it and when had Sirius been... was killed. Yeah. Sirius. No. Okay. Yeah, I get you. It's not just these kind of one-off things anymore. It's this great big bad that they're working towards now and harry knows that this is going to be the ultimate objective so let's get to uh our three big things a notable character well who is the big one for you it had to be luna lovegood this time around she was a breath of fresh air she's such a unique character she's a lot like a lot of fun you know like she's like a lightheartedness in all of the darkness like even in the scene with the ministry where you see she got punched but then she used the levicorpus spell on somebody and she's kind of like watching up in wonder and you know like uh neville grabs her hand and pulls her away and then she returns the favor for him later i always shipped that even though it never became a thing but um I also love that she isn't really affected by others or their opinions of her. There's kids, apparently Ravenclaws are dicks, but like there's a lot of kids that are mean to her and she's not bothered by it. She just embraces her quirky side and she follows what she wants instead of what the crowd wants and then ultimately helps Harry with, with everything. She gives him the, the words that he needs to continue on and I appreciate that and I, I think she gives... I think she gives Harry a fresh perspective on everything too whenever he does have a conversation with her. Sometimes they get a little eye-rolly, you know, with, oh, it's Nargles or, you know, the Quibbler and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, she does see things differently and makes them realize, makes Harry also see things differently. Um, I love the quote she tells Harry at the end where she's looking for her possessions. She tells him, things we lose always have a way of coming back to us, just not in the way we expect. Because Harry's dealing with loss and trauma. But she's also dealt with it. But she meant it more her possessions. But it could tie back into that feeling of being alone. And having that feeling of family come back. I made Harry Potter my notable character. But you know if I could. If I forced myself to use a non-Harry Potter. A a non-main character. It would have been Luna. I wanted. At the start of this film I was like. Is Sirius going to be my main character? Uh, I think there's just a couple more interesting characters before him. I would have done Luna before him. So Harry Potter, I just think his battle with the trauma and the depression that follows year four and no one believing him and feeling alone. I just felt that struggle was so palpable. It felt so real. Like these are real human emotions and it's no longer just a spectacle. And he's also, despite that depression, he becomes a real leader here, you know, not for self-interest, uh, but he wants to see everyone else ex- succeed and like do well and not fall like Cedric did. And, you know, fighting for, for control of his mind against Voldemort was also a, a key thing. I just felt his journey, he always has an interesting journey, but this felt the most human of all five stories in terms of his struggle. And I really appreciate that. And that that's part of the theme, depression and trauma. Yeah, Harry, Harry deserves the mention for sure. He, he goes through a lot. He's the one who kind of has to deal with a lot. He's the one who did lose his family. And then all eyes are on him and all of this. So he deserves recognition for sure. The theme, I said it was depression, you know, his hairy struggle. And to a lesser extent, uh, passing of the torch. Um, you see, you meet the Order of the Phoenix. And then you also see the formation of Dumbledore's army. 
you know, Sirius kind of nudges Harry to take the next few steps to become the next fighters in this war against Voldemort. The, the order's still there, but you can see, like, the younger ones are now, like, they're not just, you know, the kids that wait for the, let the adults do all the battling. They're willing to act on their own to uh, help thwart Voldemort. And it's very important that they're, you know, doing this because they're going to be key to this end game. They are the main characters of the story, so they will make the largest impact at the end. So it's important that they come to the forefront and not let the adults do all their fighting. So that's the, the second of the two themes here. So babe, I gotta ask you, plot or popcorn? Uh, I'm gonna be unsurprising here and go with plot yet again. This is our seventh official episode and yeah, it's been all good ones. Um, I just love that Harry has to fight and his, his friends have to fight on two fronts, one against Voldemort and one against the Ministry. Harry also has a third front of battling his inner demons. Uh, I just love that you have, you know, you have Voldemort and his vile Death Eaters. They do a lot of harm. They're very dangerous. But you also have the Ministry restricting them, stopping them in every turn, which also feels like a real-life issue. Higher authorities kind of coming in and telling you what you can and can't do um, and taking away their ability to really evolve they're just restricting them you know constricting their ability to to grow this is a very this is the first harry potter film that felt like an adult story and that's probably why they brought in that director because they wanted an adult engaging storytelling uh you know film because harry's no longer a child at this point he's uh he's a minor but he's no longer a child if that makes sense um and of course the story increasingly gets darker and darker you know, we see the death of Sirius, not just someone he met in that book, but someone who's been part of his life for several stories now and is, at that point, the closest thing he has to family taken away from him again. Was another proof that it's a darker story uh, is the Dursleys get attacked this time. You know, like, they're no longer safe. They're usually just the comic relief at the beginning of the film, but now they're engaged into it. Everyone is now engaged. Nowhere is safe. And I can't wait to continue this story with you. Now is your turn, Plotter Popcorn. I do look forward to the day where we actually get a popcorn movie where it's not that great and we are more invested in the popcorn than the plot. But this is not that movie, obviously. I definitely think um, the fact that the fifth one is probably my favorite book. It's maybe closely tied with the seventh one, depending on the day. You know, the seventh one could be my favorite or the fifth, but... My love of the fifth book definitely influences my love of this movie and getting to see it played out. Um, I love the development of Dumbledore's army, that kind of taking it upon themselves to learn what they're not being taught. Harry kind of stepping into that role of, of Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, like his, you know, mentor Lupin. I really appreciate the friendships and relationships in this, like Harry with Ron Hermione, who kind of don't know how to handle him and they have to it, it's just this like walking on eggshells around him kind of a thing and harry dealing with his emotions that's so real that's so human you know wizarding world issues aside like you're you you know brought up the depression that is a very real thing that a lot of us can relate to and understand and i think they did a great job of showing it here the relationship between Harry and Luna too, this kind of like offbeat person who almost like intrigues Harry and offers insight 
the relationship between Harry and Sirius. Oh, I, I wanted so bad for at the end of all of this for Harry to be able to go and live with Sirius and and be a family with him. And oh, so sad that that was never able to happen. And, and poor Sirius lost just so much. But it, it was nice to see the time that they did have together and how they bonded and just the the fatherly relationship that they had but then also Sirius kind of looking at him like James all over again and uh, Umbridge is kind of the secondary villain in all of this too she is so fucked up and and just like a, a horrible person and getting to see how they kind of work their way around that and just when she thinks she's won nope Every, that the Weasleys step up and they they you know put her in her place and then Harry puts her in her place and the centaurs fucking put her in her place so I plot all the way here I, uh, one more thing about Umbridge she makes a great non-Voldemort following villain you know where she's doing everything to complete her mission harming children you know like trying to convince them that the truth they're telling is false having this trippy demeanor but underneath is a a vicious, horrible person capable of a lot of evil. Even, you know, people who think Voldemort's bad would, you know, like be really shocked at what she can do. We both are in agreement here. This is another plot movie. I love it. Agreed. So uh, we will be back next week with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Make sure you're subscribed so you can be notified when a new episode releases, just in case we decide to do a bonus episode. There are a few cool things coming out on Netflix, I think, recently. So subscribe and uh, we'll try to get some fun things out. If you liked this episode, please rate and review. We would so appreciate it. And we will talk to you next week. All right. Cheers, guys.